...phase like fashion accessories, testimony to the good taste and excellent Gallic genes of their parents. Indoors, these kids may have been urban gentry, but outside, they looked like vassals. In Paris, playing on the grass was illegal. The only unscheduled social encounters took place in the queue for the carousel in the local square or within the confines of a white gravelled playground that was corralled like a sail yard. Kids who were unacquainted eyed each other off at a distance. In many ways, Paris was an easy city to be in. There was beauty everywhere you looked. We'd never lived in an apartment before, and having to contend with the sounds and smells of others so close above and beside us was strange and exciting. But as winter set in and the fountains froze in candied cascades and we were forced to retreat indoors, there was something pent up in our little boy that couldn't be ignored. I felt it in myself, this churning agitation, and didn't understand it until months later running madly uphill in an Irish hailstorm. For while I'd assumed our mounting mutual fractiousness was the result of cultural fatigue, the perpetual bafflement at local customs and manners, but the real source was physical confinement and an absence of wildness. As the big storm ripped overhead, my wife came in and sat by the fire. She ruffled our son's hair and gave me a quizzical look, it was as if she'd instantly registered the change of mood. When we get home, the boy declared, we're getting a dog, in a ute. Later that night, as he slept in his loft, we spoke at length about his little declaration. We knew what he hankered for wasn't really a pet, or the car it came in, but what they stood for, his Australian life and the wild spaces that made it possible. The Islands Seen and Felt I grew up on the world's largest island. The bald fact slips from consciousness so easily I'm obliged to remind myself now and again. But in an age when a culture examines itself primarily through politics and ideology, perhaps my forgetting something so basic should come as no surprise. Our minds are often elsewhere. The material facts of life, the organic and concrete forces that fashion us, are overlooked as if they're irrelevant or even mildly embarrassing. Our creaturely existence is registered, measured, discussed and represented in increasingly abstract terms. Maybe this helps explain how someone like me, who should know better, can forget he's an islander. Australia, the place, is constantly overshadowed by Australia, the national idea, Australia, the economic enterprise. There's no denying the power of these conceits. I've been shaped by them, but they are hardly the only forces at work. I'm increasingly mindful of the degree to which geography, distance and weather have moulded my sensory palate, my imagination and expectations. The island continent has not been mere background. Landscape has exerted a kind of force upon me that is every bit as geological as family. Like many Australians, I feel this tectonic grind, call it a familiar lake, 
most keenly when abroad. Living in Europe in the 1980s, I made the mistake of assuming that what separated me from citizens of the old world was only language and history, as if I really was the mongrel European transplant of my formal education. But I hadn't given my own geography sufficient credit. Neither, of course, had those who taught me. It wasn't simply about what I'd read or not read. My physical response to new places unsettled me. It was as if my body were in rebellion. Outside the great cities and the charming villages of the old world, I felt that all my wiring was scrambled. Where I had expected to appreciate the monuments and love the natural environment, the reality was entirely the reverse. The immense beauty of many buildings and streetscapes had an immediate and visceral impact.